Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ultimately, you can't have the defence um, capabilities that you need unless you've got a strong economy to pay for them. If the internet's a big part of the economy, we've got to make sure that we've got strong capabilities there. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode from our Security Summit series, Rory Medcalf is joined by the Honourable Paul Fletcher, MP, Minister for Communications, Urban Infrastructure, Cities and the Arts. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So we're really Delighted to welcome you to the National Security Podcast, Minister. It's uh, the the National Security Summit series, as we call it on our podcast, where I have the opportunity to to speak with leaders in their field. And I'm really fascinated today to begin a conversation, not only about your uh, your work, uh, your 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 insights, but your own journey as well towards identifying uh, principles for governing in the internet age. And I'd note. As a very quick, uh, a very quick promotion, you've written, I think, what is what is uh, an important book, a short book, but a really uh, a really valuable book on precisely that topic. So, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rory. Great to be with you and to have the chance to talk about some of these important issues. So, look to begin with, and I, I will move in a bit more depth into not only the, those principles for governing in the internet age, but a lot of the Australian experience of, of grappling with these issues. But I'd like to begin with asking you about national security, because this is the National Security College. And where I'd like to start is to ask how you, as a minister, but you as an Australian citizen, how, how, how you think about national security. What does it mean to you? Well, national security is enormously important, and I suppose it's effectively the collective confidence that we can have, that we can maintain our way of life. Now, what does that mean when it comes to the internet? Um, Certainly it means, I think, things like how Australian uh, values and culture is projected internationally, given that the internet is such an important medium for um, communication. Uh, Of course, it also raises novel issues, the internet raises novel issues from a national security perspective. In a world where most computers are networked, then as we've seen in the Middle East, for example, um, as an alternative to um, you know, a hostile act involving bombing a power station, uh, instead um, malicious code which disrupts the computers which control that power station um, can have the same effect in um, meaning that power is no longer being provided and that's enormously disruptive to the society where that happens. So certainly the internet has important implications for national security, but um, ultimately I guess the way I think about national security is it's it's the, the confidence that we can have that we can continue to maintain our lifestyle, that we can continue to uh, enjoy all that this country offers and the combination of things that we need to do as a nation and, and as a government, our international diplomatic efforts, uh, and of course, um, our defence capability as well. And all of that sounds as if it moves far beyond you know narrow definitions of strategic interests. You're, you're, you're talking about really the character of Australia as a nation, a society, values and identity. I think that's absolutely central. And if you look at 
the reasons that governments of both political persuasions have given for why we've participated in wars over more than a century, it's inevitably framed in terms of values and particularly shared values uh, with countries that we are allied with. Um, and uh, that's that's enormously important in terms of going to, um, I guess, the legitimacy and public perceptions of legitimacy about why governments uh, take a position that they do, why we have particular allies, why we espouse particular values in international forums, including values like freedom of speech and the rights of the individual, um, freedom of association, all of those really core uh, values which are um, fundamental to our our political system. And I think um, a lot of what is um, unspoken or not necessarily explicitly discussed but assumed amongst Australians about the way that uh, a country should operate and a society should operate. So it sounds to me as if uh, despite your your current or your portfolio being Minister for Communications, Urban Infrastructure, Cities and the Arts and, and indeed telecommunications has been a theme throughout much of your career, there is a national security element to um, to part of what you part of what you do. Well, certainly, telecommunications is absolutely bound up in national security, and that's true in every country around the world. In uh, my uh, earlier uh, stage of my career, when I was director of corporate and regulatory affairs at Optus, we maintained uh, uh, regular uh, li- liaison with relevant government agencies under the Telecommunications Interception Act. We had uh, certain obligations when uh, warrants were issued. Um, uh, So um, inevitably, uh, the the means by which um, people communicate, that's of uh, great interest to, um, uh, you know, espionage services from other countries. Um, and it is it is a key part of national security. Now, I, I make the point that our telcos are um, privately owned, apart from the MBN. Um, they stand or fall on the basis of good customer service, innovation, investment, all of those good things. Um, but uh, so they're not um, a government directed or controlled. Uh, but certainly, telecommunications is. Um, there's an important nexus between telecommunications and national security, and you've you've touched there on your uh, your private sector career with with, with Optus. Uh, it'd be really useful to hear how your uh, professional and personal journey has shaped this worldview. Well, I have been fortunate to work in various ways, largely related to the communications sector, and particularly telecommunications and the internet. Going back to the mid-90s, I worked for then Communications Minister Senator Richard Alston uh, as an advisor and finished up as Chief of Staff uh, with my primary focus in telecommunications. And one of the reasons I, I pursued that opportunity to work for him was that I'd previously done an MBA at Columbia in New York, and I took a class called Management of Communications, Information and Technology. This was in 1994. I'd left Australia in 93 to go to the US to study. At the time I left, there was no pay television in Australia. Uh, the internet certainly was not a consumer phenomenon. Basically, nobody had heard of it, apart from a, you know, a small number of academics and researchers. Uh, the, the information superhighway, I think we used to hear about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, Mobile phones were a luxury item that a tiny number of people had. And it really opened my eyes taking this course about um, this industry or set of industries. Um, We were given some basic exercises to um, use the internet file transfer protocol and some some stuff that um, it wasn't very user-friendly. But uh, that course opened my eyes to the possibilities, and so I, I got very interested in the sector. Came back to Australia, got the opportunity to, uh, as I say, work for the then minister. Combined um, interest in in politics and in in communications, um, and then eight years at Optus, 
um, then a couple of years running a consultancy firm, largely with a focus on comms, came into the parliament, uh, got drawn into working on issues of uh, online safety for children when we were in opposition. When we came to government, I was made parliamentary secretary to Malcolm Turnbull, who was Minister for Communications, um, did that for a couple of years, uh, then had um, a little bit of time in other portfolios, uh, urban infrastructure and cities, um, social service, so Minister for Families and Social Services for a period of time, but then after the 2019 election, communications minister. And uh, since December last year, I've, urban infrastructure and cities has come back into the portfolio. And there's actually a very good fit. It's been fascinating to see the extent to which uh, communications technology is such an important and growing part of modern transport and infrastructure. Um, we were I was with the Prime Minister on Friday at the uh, opening or the announcement of uh, commencement of construction of the new terminal at Western Sydney Airport. Chief Executive of Western Sydney Airport was making the point that runways have an enormous amount of communications technology embedded in them and the whole um, development of Western Sydney Airport uh, they're thinking very carefully about how to use technology to smooth the passenger experience, uh, to allow aircraft to um, uh, land and take off more efficiently and spend less time on the ground. Also to uh, manage issues like uh, biosecurity, screening of passengers in a way that's both more effective and less obtrusive using technology. So there is, a, uh, I guess, a theme running through those elements of the portfolio and there's a security element uh, to much of it too. Let, let's move to your book, uh, if I may, uh, or at least the principles behind it, because uh, you know this is, I, I guess, this is a relatively short, but I think really an insightful piece of work published earlier this year, uh, governing in the internet age in, in this um, national interest series that, uh, that that another excellent university publishes, and it. Um, it identifies principles, as far as I can tell, and, and, and you're pretty big on this point, principles for governing in the internet age. I'd love to hear what are those principles. The things that I argue for in the book are um, that, first of all, that in my assessment, government was a bit caught by surprise when the internet roared out of the lab and stopped being something that was used by a small number of academics and researchers around the world and became a mass market consumer phenomenon. That happened very, very quickly in the 90s. And governments took a little while to catch up. And for a while, governments were not at all confident about their capacity to regulate. And there was a strong philosophical strand, the sort of cyber libertarians who argued that actually the internet ought to be beyond the remit of government. Now, that might have been a defensible position when a small number of, of researchers were, were the users of the internet. But, but when uh, very large numbers of people are using it, uh, people just ex expect, without even giving it much conscious thought, that the rule of law will apply online and that if something goes wrong in your interaction with somebody online, you can go to government or its various arms and, and, and get assistance, as can happen if you have a bad experience interacting with somebody in the physical town square, that's what we have expected for hundreds of years. Uh, and people brought that expectation to the digital town square. So what are some of the principles I argue um, that governments should follow? One is um, don't give up your sovereignty uh, because um, you know the, the, the big global digital platforms, Facebook, Google, Twitter, uh, many others, um, they, it suits them to argue to governments, oh, well, you can't do much to regulate us because we're global, um, you'll be a technological backwater. I don't think that's right, and I argue that governments ought not to do that. Uh, uh, another principle is that governments need to recognise that the internet means um, unprecedented levels of scrutiny and transparency. Uh, in in the in the cliche, everybody's a citizen journalist. Um, you know, billions of people have got a smartphone, so carrying a device which lets you uh, record sound, images, video. Um, so, first of all, recognise that, but secondly, use the internet to share data with citizens, whether it's about train timetables uh, or whether it's about as we've seen through the pandemic, um, extremely recent 
data about number of cases, number of vaccinations, um, none of that would have been possible 20 years ago. So um, the, the internet allows governments to serve citizens better, I think, and part of that is, is transparency and, and data. So a lot of this is about the role of government, and I was, I was actually flicking through your book to find that, um, that quote, that quite famous or infamous quote now, uh, you know, the Declaration of uh, the Independence of Cyberspace back in the, those, um, those heady days of the mid-90s, you know, you have no sovereignty where we gather. Uh, this is all about sovereignty uh, to a large extent. And I think, as you say, there's that, that contradiction there that um, citizens expect a, a degree of regulation and a, gr- a degree of enabling, uh, but uh, cyberspace has effectively gone from being that that libertarian fantasy to being, uh, apart from anything else, a, a, a realm for some enormous corporate giants to um, to, uh, to to do their thing, uh, sometimes in defiance of, of of states. How's the Australian journey been at? At managing that extraordinary tension, and I want to move soon, particularly to your uh, your, your interesting um, or the government's interesting encounter with Facebook this year. The Australian government, I think, like many governments around the world, started with considerable caution, and when the advocates for digital businesses said things like, "Well." you should not regulate us in a in a detailed fashion because that will suffocate or stifle online activity in your country you'll become a technological backwater uh, that was an argument that was given serious credence but what has happened in terms of the economic structure of internet businesses is that it's evolved in quite a different way to what people expected In the mid 90s, we had a vision then, I think, or an expectation of a very atomistic internet with uh, millions of businesses all around the world, um, uh, and in practical terms, most of them beyond the reach of the law. Many of them expected to be based in countries um, uh, where it was, you know, that didn't have. Uh, extradition treaties with Australia or other sort of mutual recognition arrangements. In fact, what's happened is that you've got in most categories uh, a small number of very large companies, many of them listed US companies. And one of the points I make in the book is while while those companies will use all of the lawful resources to argue against proposed laws in Australia that they don't want, ultimately when a law is passed – Uh, It's not a viable proposition for a listed US business not to comply with the law in another um, uh, respected, even you know, small to medium jurisdiction. Um, You you just can't be a a, you know a a big publicly listed American business and not comply with the law somewhere you're doing business. So, um, in short, I think the Australian government has got more confident over time. And one of the examples that I give in the book is our new Online Safety Act, which we passed this year, um, has uh, gives our eSafety Commissioner uh, powers in relation to online content. So this is to deal with issues like um, uh, pornography online. We've had rules in this space. They were first put into the Broadcasting Services Act nearly 20 years ago, but uh, there was a clear distinction drawn between material hosted onshore and offshore. And the basic premise was we don't think we can regulate material that's hosted offshore. In this new act, we quite specifically say material of the most serious kinds, which would be uh, refused classification or or uh, uh, other very serious material, so things like child sexual abuse material and so on. We say clearly we assert the right to regulate regardless of whether the, where the material is hosted. Another example is a few years ago, um, we changed the law when when Scott Morrison was treasurer. He changed the law. It used to be the law that uh, online transactions of less than $1,000 did not attract GST. And that clearly put Australian domestic retailers at a competitive disadvantage against the global internet retailers. And so um, that exceptional waiver was removed 
Amazon in particular protested fiercely about that. They left the Australian market, but about six months later, they came back. And so I think a series of experiences like that has given the Australian government um, greater confidence that uh, you can and you should apply the rule of law when online businesses are doing business in Australia and serving Australians. You've you've touched on the uh, the e safety commissioner, the children's e safety commissioner, now the e safety commissioner uh, in in Australia, and it would be useful to hear a little bit more about the, I guess, precisely the role and the the powers uh, and the expectations that come with that, and 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 how that's perhaps played a pioneering role internationally. But I will like I will come back then later if you like to the uh, the Facebook question, the uh, the the media, uh, in in particular the. Um, uh, the the news media bargaining code, but please, if we start first. yes, if we start with the e safety commissioner, we came to government in 2013 with a promise that we would establish a regulator to do something about the problem of cyber bullying, because what parents were saying and children and teachers was that. Um, children who are victims of cyberbullying, it was very hard to get anything done about it. If you went to see the police, they were sympathetic, but they didn't really know what to do and they had a lot of other issues to deal with. So we established what was then called the Children's E-Safety uh, Commissioner and backed it up with statutory powers. So if there is material which meets the definition of uh, cyberbullying of an Australian child, the eSafety Commissioner has a power to order the platform to take the material down. Now, um, that model has worked pretty well. In almost all cases, there's no need to issue the formal order. Um, the eSafety Commissioner simply notifies the platform and they take the material down. Several thousand children have been assisted through that. We've then ex gradually expanded the role. So we, we then renamed it, as you say, the eSafety Commissioner. Uh, we added powers to deal with unauthorised sharing of intimate images. So this is a problem which overwhelmingly strikes women and girls. Um, in, in the world of smartphones and sort of changing social behaviours, it's become commonplace for people to take intimate images in the context of relationships. A proportion of relationships obviously um, end badly. And in some cases, those images then get posted online. Um, it's colloquially called revenge porn, um, our e-safety commissioner, Julian and Grant, makes the point that a much better term is image-based abuse. Uh, and it's a devastating thing to be a victim of. And so again, what we've done is given the e-safety commissioner the power to order that such material be taken down. Um, again, several thousand girls and women mainly, uh, uh, people, but uh, the majority of them girls and women have been uh, assisted through this and we're continuing further work. So we've committed some funding to eSafety um, to come up with uh, a, a technology to effectively crawl the web and um, uh, come up with a, a, a hash or a hashtag for a particular image because quite often what we find is that a woman who's been the victim of this, an image will be found on one site, but then it turns out it's on other sites as well. So we're wanting to use some technology to go around and identify all the locations. That's work in progress, but it's an example of a kind of unprecedented social problem. If you'd said to people 20 years ago, we'd have this problem, people would think that, well, it's crazy, but it reflects a number of things, including particularly not just the internet, but the smartphone and the fact that almost all of us now carry a device uh, which can capture images, video, sound, and it can be uploaded almost instantly. Um, we've continued to then expand the roles of the eSafety Commissioner. We committed the 2019 election to do that, and after quite extensive consultation, we introduced and passed through the Parliament this year the Online Safety Act. Um, that expands some of the existing regimes. So, for example, the cyberbullying measures now go more broadly beyond social media platforms to other places where young people interact, for example, chat rooms in games. Uh, but what it will also do for the first time is establish um, a power to deal with serious uh, cyber abuse of Australian adults. Now, we've set the bar considerably higher than for the cyberbullying of children. We've got to balance up freedom of speech issues here, and also adults are more resilient than children. But the, the test in the legislation is that it has to be uh, material which 
a reasonable person would regard as menacing, harassing, or offensive, and uh, would conclude was um, specifically targeted at an individual with an intention to harm that individual. Okay, so that's there's so much there. But uh, what about the um, uh, the news media bargaining code, and, and especially that that if you like pretty untidy ballet that that we sometimes have between government and um, the uh, the big telcos to um, to get the right outcome, or the tech giants really. The, the 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 news media bargaining code was legislated early this year, but it goes back quite a way. Then Treasurer Scott Morrison commissioned the ACCC, our competition regulator, to conduct the digital platforms inquiry, looking at the market power of Google and Facebook. They produced a very detailed authoritative report, several hundred pages, first a draft and then a final. They pointed out in that work that Google is used by over 19 million Australians every month, Facebook over 17 million. Um, They also made the point that... uh, on this market PowerPoint, YouTube, owned by Google, um, Instagram, WhatsApp, owned by Facebook. So many of the applications and platforms that Australians are using are owned by one or other of these two giants with market capitalizations, you know, depending upon the day of um, over, over a trillion, um, I think in the case of Google's parent company. So these are enormous businesses. And roads leading back to California, basically. Yeah. <laughs> now, the reason we asked the ACCC to look at this was particularly through a competition lens. And they gave 23 recommendations. One of them dealt with the commercial relationship between news media businesses, Seven West Media, Nine Entertainment Limited, the ABC, and the platforms because what the platforms very successfully do is attract eyeballs and monetize that through digital advertising revenue but amongst the content they're using to attract people to the platforms are things like a 90 second clip from nine news um, that is then seen in somebody's facebook page or um, a google link through to a story in the herald sun about um, uh, you know changes for example to um, you know, quarantine requirements in, in Victoria. So the the competition policy argument was that these companies, Google and Facebook, are competing with Australian news media businesses, but they're using, as part of doing that, content generated and paid for by news media businesses. It costs money to employ journalists and editors and so on. And they're not sitting down and having a commercial negotiation about how much they should pay for that because of their market power. So the way the News Media Bargaining Code legislation works is it essentially says um, an Australian news media business can trigger an arbitration with Google or Facebook um, and Google or Facebook has to participate in that. The intention of it was to encourage commercial deals to be done so that that formal arbitration mechanism never needed to be triggered. And to date, it's worked pretty effectively. So Google and Facebook have entered into substantial numbers of deals with news media businesses. Uh, quite a lot of money is flowing, and that will support quality journalism because not only is this a competition policy problem, it's also a media policy problem. In a liberal democracy, we want to have a diverse media, but it costs money to run media businesses. Um, and, uh, again, that goes to, I think, our broader values and it links in perhaps to some of those issues, that broader definition of national security that we talked about at the start of the podcast. So is, are there any insights you can give us that aren't already out there in the public debate on how, how we got to an outcome with, um, with, with the tech giants this year? Well, there were a number of things. Firstly, based upon very thorough detailed policy work led by our you know, very respected competition regulator. Secondly, we took it through several stages going back to, um, so we announced our response to the ACCC's recommendations in December 2019. In 2020, we said there would be a mandatory code. We'd initially proposed a voluntary code, but we weren't satisfied with Google and Facebook's level of engagement in the development of a voluntary code. So we said there's going to be a mandatory code 
We consulted extensively, so there are a couple of iterative drafts put out. Um, Google and Facebook, as well as other stakeholders, were given uh, extensive opportunities to put their views, to be consulted. It then went into the parliament. The bill was introduced. There was then a parliamentary committee which examined it. So we went through a very thorough, careful, proper process. Uh, What was really important was the very strong commitment and engagement of the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, you know, the two, uh, the, the, the leader and deputy leader of the Parliamentary Liberal Party, are very strongly committed. Um, I uh, sat with both of them in a number of uh, video conferences, including with Mark Zuckerberg, the global head of Facebook, um, as well as the uh, we met with the uh, global head of Google and also indeed of uh, of Microsoft who um, who uh, were wanting to let us know and wanting to make it clear publicly that uh, if Google were to carry through on their threat um, not to maintain a search business in Australia then the uh, Microsoft Bing platform they were very interested in expanding in Australia and uh, it was amazing how a little bit of competitive pressure um, had quite an impact. Indeed, and there was that moment where I think, and a relatively brief moment, where uh, a lot of Australians suddenly discovered that um, some services they'd become very used to via Facebook weren't weren't there, and I suspect that had a hand in the um, the final dynamic. Look, look, that was that was a very serious moment when uh, Australians woke up to find that the Facebook pages of news media businesses around the country had been shut down, as well as the Facebook pages of a lot of a lot of other organisations. Uh, emergency services organisations, state health departments in the middle of a pandemic, um, a, a business in my electorate called North Shore Mums, which uh, you know is, as the name suggests, it's a platform um, uh, with lots of useful information about um, you know things like great playgrounds for kids and um, schools and, uh, um, and and obviously attracts advertising and so on. So the this. Move by Facebook was ill-judged. It was uh, not well-targeted. It was um, did their brand some damage. I think they realised that quickly in reverse direction. Um, but ultimately, both Google and Facebook um, uh, are subject to the legislation, despite some you know these various attempts. I think to divert us from our course. But the Prime Minister and the Treasurer uh, were very firm on the course we were taking. I should acknowledge that the opposition, the crossbenchers, also supported us, and I think these various moves by Google and Facebook were were they had the one of their consequences they had was that it, in a way, unified the parliament. Um, but ultimately, we got to the outcome, and Google and Facebook have since done a lot of deals with Australian news media businesses. Um, our aim was to regulate just as much as we needed to, and no more, and. Um, fundamentally our view was these are matters that ordinarily should be dealt with in commercial negotiations between market participants. The reason that wasn't happening was because of the substantial market power of Google and Facebook. The intervention we came up with um, was designed to uh, um, result in more normal market behaviour and and we feel that 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 has been what's happened. So Australia's played, I think, quite a lead role internationally on these issues. Um, I want to come to one more issue. I'm going to um, jump ahead a little and go to the the issue of disinformation and misinformation and and the distinction between the two. Uh, And then I'd like to just come back to getting a sense of your your experience of Australia as as a pioneer um, in the role of government in these areas. But moving to the... um, the risks, the dangers of disinformation and particularly of, of, of deliberate misinformation online. Um, what you know? What's the challenge? What can Australia do? And in particular, on the question of deep fakes, uh, which you know, hypothetically in, uh, in in election campaigns, could be a real danger. Well, the challenge, of course, is that a lot of people are getting information from social media, but unlike traditional media, there's no fact checking. There's no editorial control and people can post pretty much what they want. Now, that means there's a lot of material posted by people who are, to put it generously, not subject matter experts. Um, 
and, you know, that is misinformation. And then you've got the even more troubling instance of disinformation where material that is inaccurate is posted deliberately with an intent to um, to mislead or indeed to cause um, uh, social disruption, for ex- particularly in the context, for example, of elections. And, um, uh, you know, there's, there's, it's widely thought that in recent US elections there's been high-volume efforts, uh, presumably from uh, unfriendly countries, to, to pump uh, disinformation online to try and encourage or influence election outcomes. Um, we've in Australia we've seen things like um, uh, the claim that was running around a bit last year that there was a link between uh, 5G mobile networks and COVID. I mean, complete nonsense, absolute nonsense. But uh, so then the question is: Okay, well, what's an appropriate policy response? It's important to, I think, distinguish between general efforts to deal with this and then the role of specific regulators in specific subject matter areas. So, for example, when um, uh, there were some claims being made about vaccines um, online, uh, the Therapeutic Goods Administration has taken action in relation to those on the basis that um, purported quotes from their reports uh, were misused, taken out of context, a breach of copyright, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, uh, the um, elect- Australian Electoral Commission, ahead of each election, engages with the platforms in relation to um, the risk of misinformation in an election context there are specific provisions that the AEC has under their act that they can use to, to move quite quickly. So you've got um, regulators with specific responsibilities in specific subject matter areas. Uh, then you've got the broader policy question. So what we've done on this, again, adopting a recommendation from the ACCC Digital Platforms Inquiry, is we've um, asked the, the platforms to prepare a voluntary code. They've done that. Um, and that's now been in place since about March, April this year. We're monitoring how that's going. Uh, the Australian Communications Media Authority has given me uh, an initial report on that, but they're continuing to monitor it. We're following essentially European Union model here. Uh, we will monitor it, and if we don't think it's doing the job, um, then we stand ready to intervene in a more direct fashion. But what, what, what about deep fake videos? I mean, it was only a few years ago that, you know, it, it was astounding to learn of the potential and, and, and the scope for the, you know, in, in theory, uh, videos, for example, uh, you know, purporting to be a, a political leader saying things in the context of an election campaign that could have a real influence on public opinion, if not immediately um, counted and corrected. I mean, how do you see the risk of deep fake videos in Australia and what specifically uh, is government doing about that? Well, Well, I agree it is a risk and I think it's are part of a continuum. Um, I I don't think it's – well, it's clearly disinformation because it's deliberately intended to mislead. Um, And I think – so I think it falls into that uh, broad category of areas uh, where on the one hand there'll be specific regulators, so in an election context certainly the AEC um, uh, will watch that very carefully – but in the broader context, um, we certainly see this as something falling within disinformation and within the scope of that code that I've mentioned. Um, what, one, one observation I'd make is this question of you know, digital literacy and whether people accept what they see online at face value. It is interesting when you talk to younger Australians who have grown up in a digital world, in some senses I think they are much more alive to this than older Australians. I was with my colleague Michael McCormack in Wagga a week or so ago and 
we went into a school and had a conversation about online safety with a group of uh, nine and ten year olds and um, their general um, level of understanding um, that not everything on the internet is what it purports to be um, I think compares very favorably to what you'd get from uh, a group of people quite a lot older and I do think that's a consequence of uh, having grown up in a digital world uh, but there's no doubt that we need to continue uh, our efforts to alert people to uh, the risks and to have an intelligent skepticism and certainly the problem of scams uh, is a significant one. Australians are losing a lot of money to scams and they're very sophisticated. I mean, my general advice to people is if you get a text from somebody you don't know and if you have, and it has a link in it, delete the text. I mean, that's that's what I do. And we know that um, this is a significant problem. I also know that the telcos are doing a lot of work on it. Indeed, we've got a scams code as well. But if you take something like Flubot, which is one of these uh, text-based scams, the the volumes of those texts that are being blocked by the telcos and never getting to the customer is large, uh, but you know we need constant vigilance here. Is there how much more scope is there for sort of structured public education campaigns? Uh, I think there is um, there is scope for that, and and there's certainly some of that going on. But uh, I, I think I think it's first of all general education. Um, don't take everything at face value on the internet or indeed anywhere else, but given that the internet is such a pervasive uh, source of information and a place where we spend our time, that's certainly part of it. And in general online safety education, which children now do get quite a lot of at school, um, this is certainly an element. Um, but then it's also, where appropriate, uh, specific public messaging about particular scams, particularly uh, financial scams, I think. We'll be back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Paul, I mentioned earlier and, and, and I touched on earlier that um, a lot of what Australia's done in this space in the last few years has actually been quite world-leading, um, perhaps somewhat courageous at times. Um, how have you found Australia's place in the international debate on these issues? Have you had other governments saying, what are you, what are you crazy people doing in Australia? Or, or alternately, uh, what can you do to help us with our experience dealing with the the tech giants or or these um, these risks. There is a lot of interest in our approach. It's I, I think part of our approach has been uh, Prime Minister Morrison has really taken a forward leaning approach on this in international forums at the G twenty recently. He specifically raised the issue of online safety following the uh, appalling Christchurch mosque attack. Uh, where over 50 people were murdered and that was live streamed. I mean, that was just an unbelievable um, uh, demonstration of the lack of control and the lack of inbuilt safety measures in what the online platforms do. It's inconceivable that a traditional television network could ever have done that. Um, and certainly Prime Minister Morrison uh, was a very strong international voice on that, as of course was Prime Minister Ardern. Um, and a number of other international leaders. 
But there is strong interest. There was very strong interest in um, and news media bargaining code. I spoke to a number of my, number of my counterpart ministers, the um, Secretary of State for Culture, I think it is in the UK, uh, my Canadian counterpart, um, and several others. I know the Prime Minister uh, discussed the matter with several of his 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 his, uh, his counterparts, including Prime Minister Trudeau, Prime Minister Modi, and others. Uh, and certainly the treasurer also. Um, so there is strong interest, um, and there's also interest in our e-safety commissioner model. Uh, Fiji has established a similar office. Um, Ireland is in the course of establishing quite similar arrangements, uh, and indeed our e-safety commissioner, Julian Mangrant, uh, will shortly be travelling to uh, Europe to meet with counterparts and uh, regulators and officials in quite a number of countries where she'll be talking about our model. I want to ask just two more questions on the international <clears throat> front before we, we we wrap up. And there's so many other ways we could take this conversation, but I know time is limited. So the first question I want to go to is actually the, the broader question <clears throat> of geostrategic competition globally, which has a technology edge to it. And I know this moves into plenty of other portfolios, but uh, your your book focus, he, focuses heavily on what, particularly what liberal democracies can do about the the opportunities and the, and the challenges of the internet age. But of course, there is a global geostrategic competition very focused here in the Indo-Pacific. And it's very clear that on the one side, uh, you have the United States and a range of democracies. And on the other, you do have particularly China as an authoritarian power, but not only China. So what can you say to us about the impact of this global and regional strategic competition on the um, the technology ecosystems you're talking about, particularly the um, you know the the economic opportunities and challenges for Australia? It's clearly a very important economic policy question. How do we share in the prosperity that's being generated by the internet? How can we be active on the production side of the internet? Australians are very avid consumers of technology. We're early adopters. Our take-up rate for mobile phones in the 90s was one of the highest in the world. I remember as um, as I was leaving Optus, um, I had gone to the US in 2007 and got myself a an iPhone, um, they weren't released in Australia. What you had to do was find somebody to so-called jailbreak it for you. Um, uh, what I One of the Optus engineers told me that by the time the iPhone was officially launched in Australia in late 2008, uh, there were about 40,000 of them already on the Optus network. Similarly, um, Netflix, there were several hundred thousand people consuming Netflix in Australia before they launched here using a VPN. So we're very enthusiastic adopters of technology. I quote um, you know, a couple of tech leaders in the book uh, arguing that we've got to make sure we're also on the production side of the, of the, uh, the internet. Now, you can look at, a, I think, like companies like Atlassian, like Canva, um, as examples of uh, some remarkable Australian successes in tech businesses and the internet certainly makes the economy much more competitive. Look at, for example, the free-to-air television networks uh, that fall within my portfolio. They now face intense competition from global streaming businesses like Netflix and Disney Plus. Uh, but at the same time, the intensely competitive nature of the internet also gives Australian businesses the chance to uh, serve global markets. So while we um, ultimately prove not to be competitive in manufacturing cars, uh, I look at businesses like Coda Wireless based in Adelaide, which produces software used in uh, connected and automated vehicles. Now they can be competitive because software, of course, is weightless. Um, you don't have to pay big freight charges to, uh, to get your product around the world. Uh, and there are lots of examples of that. So um, I, to my mind, the the overlap between the economic and the national security angle here is ultimately you can't um, uh, have the defence um, capabilities that you need unless you've got a strong economy to pay for them. You can look at countries like Singapore and Israel 
which have strong economies and and therefore have um, uh, in turn uh, a, a military capability uh, well ahead of most of the countries in their respective region. Um, and certainly if the internet's a big part of the economy, we've got to make sure that we've got strong capabilities there because uh, ultimately our economic uh, prosperity depends upon that, but equally our capacity to defend ourselves depends on it. And, and to what extent uh, does this go to Australia being a either a, a driver of standards or, or a country that at least tries to influence the standards uh, embedded in that technology? Well, well certainly we do um, get very much involved in influencing standards. At the same time, there are big benefits for a country like Australia in having global standards. Big production runs means low costs, lower costs for consumers. Um, the example that always sticks in my mind from my time at Optus was the uh, a chart that the engineers used to put up, the cost of uh, then GSM, the, the mobile stand at the time, the cost of GSM handsets had dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. Uh, the Optus cable network um, was one of the largest customers of the particular vendor uh, in other words, the total volumes being sold of that technology were not very high around the world and the per customer cost had barely moved in 10 years. So it serves Australia's interest and the interest of our consumers if there are global standards. So production runs are very big and um, the, the cost of a mobile handset or whatever the device is becomes much more affordable. Um, and it's not going to be ever realistic for a country like Australia to be trying to set global standards, but we do want to be a respected voice in influencing them. I'll take you to one more international question, and then I want to wrap up by asking you for a little a little bit of advice uh, to our, our listeners on one or two issues. But the the international question more specifically is in our neighbourhood, is in the South Pacific, and it's the question about the uh, the purchase of, of Digicel by Telstra recently and, and the role of government in supporting or encouraging uh, that decision. Uh, on the one hand, you know, we've heard a lot about the the role of the market and 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 of course uh, you know your own party's principles in that regard. And yet um, there's an opportunity there's a place here clearly uh, in your view for government or this decision wouldn't have been taken. If you can please talk us through a little of the Digicel um, outcome and, and what it means for Australia's principles. Yeah, thanks, Rory. So for those listening who may not be super familiar with it, Digicel is a business which uh, operates mobile networks in PNG, in Fiji and a range of other uh, countries in uh, in the Pacific. It also has a separate business in the Caribbean, but that's not part of the transaction here. Now, the owner of that business um, uh, indicated that- um, It was an Irish owner. An, an Irish uh, <laughs> billionaire um, uh, indicated that um, he wanted to sell the Pacific assets of Digicel. Um, now, the Australian government obviously has a significant focus on the Pacific in terms of our aid, in terms of our um, diplomacy, uh, and um, I guess a, um, a desire to continue to contribute to the economic development and security of the Pacific. And, and to interrupt you, there's often widely believed to be a China context to that. Um... Uh Look, um, I'll leave it for others to sort of uh, analyse or, or offer interpretations there. Um, but clearly, we've had a long-term interest in the Pacific, and um, that continues to be a priority. That you know, uh, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne uh, and other relevant colleagues are charged with advancing. And indeed, it was uh, Minister Payne um, uh, who. Um, you know, had significant uh, involvement in this matter. Um, the other point I make is that we have uh, well-established arrangements, as most countries do around the world, to provide um, uh, loans or other financial support for um, transactions of a import-export nature that um, are, are considered to be in the in the, in the national economic interest. And so, for all those reasons, um, the 
the Morrison government determined that um, we would, through those well-established mechanisms and those sit within the portfolio of Trade Minister Dan Tian, we'd provide uh, uh, loans um, to support Telstra's purchase of those Digicel assets in in uh, in the in the Pacific. Um, so that that company is now a subsidiary of, of Telstra. Um, and I think that'll be good news in terms of the services that are available to people in the Pacific. Um, Telstra's made their own financial assessment of the deal, and uh, I'll leave it to, their, to Telstra to comment on that. But um, uh, to have a respected Australian telco uh, owning these businesses, we think is a means by which we can continue to contribute to economic growth and development in a number of our Pacific neighbours. Thanks for that. I'm going to wrap up with a question seeking your, um, I guess, advice to whether it's uh, students or the workforce or the Australian population about careers and skills. You know, at the National Security College, we're all about um, developing the capability that the nation needs, uh, whether it's through our courses or our uh, public outreach or our engagement with other institutions. And in your book and in your portfolio and in your career, you've um, you know you, you, you've tracked this rapidly changing landscape with, with pretty profound impacts for society and, and, and security. And presumably, government needs a certain kind of person, uh, certain kinds of skills uh, for the nation to actually prosecute its interests in this space. So, if you were uh, recruiting the workforce of the future, whether it's in government or the private sector, uh, based on your knowledge of your portfolio, what sort of skills and education would you be encouraging um, and experience would you be encouraging uh, the next generation to look for? I think there's a few things. Clearly, as I argue in the book, um, the the internet changes everything in the sense that almost every industry is has been transformed by the internet and it's transformed the way that as consumers we purchase goods and services. So uh, a general understanding of that, um, some understanding of of um, coding is probably a good thing. Most people are not going to spend their life writing software, but some understanding of those basic uh, principles will be important. But then also the way that it um, changes uh, business practices. You know, Atlassian, the Australian software business, Talk about the fact that they don't, you know, have a have an army of of salespeople in the traditional way that tech companies have often worked. They use the internet as their means to um, to uh, make people aware of their product. Um, so, if you're going to work in the sales and marketing field, how 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 does that work today? Um, and again, you can look at Australian businesses like Campaign Monitor, which uh, have um, made a very big business out of email marketing, for example. So I think a general awareness of how the technology is used, you don't, uh, certainly for people who do want to be software engineers, um, uh, I say good luck to you and um, uh, I think you can be um, assured of, uh, <laughs> of strong employment prospects, but that's not going to be all of us. It won't be most of us, in fact. But a general appreciation of these issues will be important. Um, I think the other thing is uh, clearly the internet does make the world more global. And so um, an understanding of other cultures and countries is important and it might well make sense to pick one other country or, or language or culture to build some, build some, some depth in. Fundamentally, um, the internet creates many more opportunities for us, but it does make the world more global and more competitive. So it's always been the case that it's a good idea to think about, okay, what what's my differentiator? What's my competitive advantage going to be? What's my area of strength going to be? Um, I think the internet um, only makes that longstanding principle even more important. Look, thank you, uh, Paul Fletcher, and your your book is, is in many ways uh, a manifesto about openness as well, in, in my view. So thanks for your time and your insights here on the National Security Podcast. Thanks, Rory. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. To find out more about the Minister's new book, follow the link in our show notes. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.
It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.